0: Well, kia ora koutou, everyone. Welcome into the hoon around um, the world of geopolitics and the political economy in New Zealand. This is something we do weekly. Normally, I'm with Peter Bale. G'day, Peter. How's it going? Hi,
1: Bernard. Bernard. I think we're validating the claim that uh, my daughter made many years ago that I travel the world talking bollocks. (laughs) That's
0: right. Yeah, a, a week that was uh, talking bollocks. But it's fun to talk about the world around us, and, and goodness knows we've got to do some something to keep ourselves. Um, well, that's informed. right. You're the only person
1: keeping me sane in the lockdown at the moment, Bernard. <laughs> and I, and you're, you're lucky that I'm not in my in my pajamas drinking an entire bottle of wine through a straw at the moment. I, ah, feel, I think no, I need that's... to get one of those. Baseball, you know, drink it. A sort of pinot gris helmet.
0: What pinot gris on one side, mm. chardonnay on the other, or whatever.
1: Or, or possibly pinot noir. Um, and have not, different. Yeah, not, that's a very good idea. Not
0: bad. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful to see you. And there's been so much that's happening this week. For those who are regular listeners, last week we had a. A really close look at what was going on in Afghanistan, and wondered whether things were about to go very pear-shaped, and indeed they did. Uh, by the way, Peter writes the uh, weekly World Bulletin for the spin-off, and has some fantastic links in there, and has been spending the last two or three weeks looking closely at Afghanistan. So, Peter, um, what on earth went on? It just
1: yeah, well there's a couple off. of things, Ben, and, and I I admit so I did two things for the for the spin-off this week. One because I mean there's obviously been excellent coverage in New Zealand, but what I try to do with that spin-off thing is pull in some of the best writing in the world and some of the best explanatory information in the world so that we kind of understand how this has come about. Because I think also one of the things that's sometimes missing in news generally is, you know, this is a thing that's been going on for you know for 20 years. So even people who, who, who aren't our advanced age may not in fact you know, who are younger than us may not really know quite how we got there, quite who the people the personalities were and quite what the history is. And I, th- I, th- I think you know the history is very, very, very important here as well as the sort of impact. So in the second one I did this week, I did focus very much on the historical aspect and in, in particular now the geo- geopolitical implications of all of this. and it is extraordinary to see Russia, China, and Pakistan all, to some extent, celebrating the embarrassment and humiliation, really, of the United States in there with this you know, extraordinarily chaotic withdrawal, which is also very interestingly so strong, popular in the United States, not the chaos exactly, but the decision to withdraw. That's something a lot of people don't
0: quite understand because of <coughs> the way that the debate is framed. There's a lot of um, assumption that the American withdrawal was the wrong thing or it was done badly but actually more than 70% of americans are going yeah good
1: we're out that's right that's right no, it, and and i think i think you know that is that is one of the key reasons biden has done it i think was chaotic i think it is to some extent at least the wrong thing to do certainly for you know for the for the the nation building aspect of that but what what's also really struck me with with Biden and we talked a little bit about this last week but is the cynicism that Biden has deployed you know this allegedly great communicator somebody who's been in you know be, been in the senate for so long has a lot of foreign affairs experience has really been deeply and profoundly cynical about the original um intent of going into um going into Afghanistan and has kind of well, lied a little bit, actually, about what the intent was and what his intent was. And one of the reasons that I, in, in this piece about, that I did for the spin-off, spin-off, uh, I quoted from George Packer in the, in the Atlantic magazine. Now, George Packer is a really extraordinary journalist who did a wonderful book uh, a couple of years ago about Richard Holbrook, the very famous American diplomat, famous, frustrated, grumpy, egotistical American diplomat, who's probably... The most significant American foreign policy figure since George F. Kennan, who is the person who specified uh, or, or wrote the, re- the, the doctrine that governed the uh, United States' relationships with the Soviet Union during during the during the, during the, the Cold War, and, and he pulled out some quotes from Holbrook's diary from 2010. Holbrook, is, Hol, Holbrook died of a of, of a massive heart attack or a heart, heart problem, and and he quotes Biden as saying to him, I'm not going to send my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It won't work. And that's not what we're there for. So there's there's kind of precedence for Biden to want to be out of there, to not be committed to going in there. Apparently in the Obama era, he was the one member of the Obama cabinet who was reluctant to do the surge. If you remember that when, but when uh, Holbrook asked him um, what a complete withdrawal would mean for Afghans. And this is, you know, this is 11 years ago we're talking about. Biden replied, fuck that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. Yeah. Now, I thought that was really telling because... People have made the comparison between the withdrawal, you know, the, the, the withdrawal from Saigon. Uh, I think we talked last week. A friend of mine in, in Cambodia also made the comparison, comparison between the 1975 withdrawal by Gerald Ford from Cambodia, having and having run an illegal war in Cambodia that spread over from Vietnam, and and that left. That left Odia really open to the Khmer Rouge. It opened the way for the Khmer Rouge, year zero, and all that went along with that, the murder of about 25% of the entire population. Now, so that that quote about we don't have to worry about that, we did it in Vietnam, Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. I find extraordinarily interesting, and that's where your remark that around 70% of Americans actually support this withdrawal, uh, that's what matters to him. It's also very interesting. there was almost no conversation with other world leaders. It just happened. you know there the was there were belated conversations with Boris Boris Johnson, and of course Boris Johnson has has been exposed to some absolutely extraordinary scenes in Parliament this week, particularly from a couple of British politicians who who themselves in oh, Afghanistan, yeah. As soldiers, and we you know, have the, been extraordinarily the Brits, the Brits upset were, by what's happened now.
0: The Brits were there in large numbers and suffered a
1: lot. Four hundred and fifty-one deaths, I think yeah, it is. Yeah. Four hundred and fifty-one. Yeah, no, it's it's they, they did, and you know, there's lots of stories about how pointless and, and futile it all seems now. I, and I don't think this ca- scandal is going to go away at all, or the stain really on. You know, we don't like. We know that Boris Johnson doesn't like detail, but you know, he was on holiday when this happened. His foreign foreign secretary Dominic Raab was on holiday. He refused to listen to messenger. Since- <laughs> and declined to yeah declined to do a call with it with, with his, the Afghan foreign minister to negotiate on getting people out. But if I could just come back, Bernard, one of the one of the you know the, the geopolitical aspects of this are so profound because it is a humiliation of the United States. If you were you know the Ukraine or Lithuania or Latvia. Would you be thinking that the US might be an unreliable ally, particularly about in the Ukraine? Is the, U, is the US really going to prevent more Russian interference or a Russian, more bold Russian move into the eastern Ukraine? I'm not so sure. And, and, and it's so Russia is kind of interesting about this because, you know, Vladimir Putin, as we know, thrives on chaos and has a very kind of, you know, Soviet type approach to it, which is which is just to sow as much chaos for others as possible. So, you know, he's been deeply involved with the Taliban in the last, you know, X, X number of years. And then China's interest in this is really interesting. I had a small argument with somebody the other day from the Lowy Institute who's a very good China analyst, and he was saying, oh, they, they're interested in stability. And they may be up to a point, but they're also interested in anything anything that is bad for the United States at the moment is theoretically good for China.
0: Yeah, well, this is this is an interesting one. So <laughs> Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, is a, is a good one. And, you know, obviously the Brits have been there, the Russians have been there, now the Americans are, are there. There's no suggestion that the Chinese, in partnership with Pakistan, could sort of get involved at all.
1: Well, I think there is actually no. I think there, I think there absolutely is, and, and Pakistan's role in this, including Imran Khan's role as as Prime Minister, is quite interesting because it 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 has always played right from the very beginning of this kind of secret hand, which became more and more obvious where its ISI intelligence in, intelligence service was secretly funding the Taliban, secretly providing providing you know support and sanctuary for them along the border partly in a way to as an antidote to what India was trying to do and trying to do in the, um in Afghanistan. But you know, while while officially Pakistan was an ally in the United States and this, unofficially, the ISI was was doing everything it could to support the pal- to the Taliban and to and to really get the Americans kind of bogged down in, in Afghanistan. And I th- you know Imran Khan describe described the victory of the Taliban this week as quotes breaking the sh- breaking the shackles of slavery, close quotes. And you know I think that's a really interesting approach. He of course faces a domestic version of the of the Taliban as well so you know he has to he has to tread a very fine line between his uh, Islamic extremists the army the intelligence services and China of course i mean so Pakistan is one of the great beneficiaries and great partners in the belt and road project particularly with the building of an enormous port in southern uh, Pakistan on the Arabian Sea
0: one thing i'm curious about is how this undermines america's reputation in the world and very its much so, existing yeah partnerships with others, in particular NATO, remembering that many of the NATO partners went in there to Afghanistan with America. As you say, Biden Mm. didn't talk to them. They were just shocked as everyone else when the pullout happened in such a dramatic way. And you're hearing things like the the German Defence Minister saying, well, how can we rely on these Americans ever again if someone has a crack at us? And you you do worry that this post-war Um, reliance on America as the guardian of freedom against the big bad dictators, that that can't be relied on anymore. And that effectively, if you're in uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, let's say you're on the continent in Europe, you're Germany, you're Poland, you're Hungary, whatever, you... You're going, gee, if the Russians want to take me on, I can't depend on the
1: Americans anymore. Right? I better no, no, build no, up absolutely. my arms. I better absolutely. And if we remember, Bernard, you know, it was really Clinton that Clinton who you know drove that kind of interventionist approach originally with the intervention in Kosovo and and in and in former Yugoslavia. And that doctrine of the United States being the world's policeman and so on, you know, is is going to is I think going to turn turn on its head now. But also, we need you know we do need to remember that it was George George W. Bush who took the United States into Afghanistan, you know, immediately after 9/11, theoretically. With the limited agenda to 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 find and kill Osama bin Laden, which only happened eight years later, and of course happened in neighboring Pakistan, where he was clearly known to be there and given being given sanctuary, and of course they did, you know, depose the Taliban and then became came this issue of nation building, which is which is what Biden is now denying was the original process, original. um, Intent, but just the Global Times, which is a, a Chinese, effectively a Chinese propaganda outlet, said this week, and I, I, this is getting to your point about embarrassment for the United States, it said the Taliban's rapid victory embarrasses the United States, smashes its image and arrogance. U.S. complete, you know, in the headline, U.S. it was the U.S. complete collapse in the twenty twenty year Afghan war, a page of humiliation and proof of U.S. failure in stretching arms to control and change others. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is it, it. Plays into the Chinese proposition, which is that we were, you know, you, you can argue that the Belt and Road thing is is kind of uh, diplomacy by by debt.
0: Yeah, are you still there, Peter?
1: I don't know what happened there. You got this delivered? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I got ah. a bit of a. So you know, the the, the the China does interfere in other countries, but it doesn't do it militarily. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is this is you know the, the the central sort of Chinese policy is that we will not interfere in in other countries, no matter how oppressive they are. And uh, of course, that hasn't historically been the American approach. So you've got you know two two really extraordinary rivals, China, most importantly, and more an opportunistic approach from Russia. And then you've got this dilemma, really, for for Pakistan to support the Taliban to believe that this is now a success. What happens? You know, China, uh, Pakistan is a is a nuclear nation, neighbouring India has has a sort of in a permanent state of tension with India, you know, there's there's still a lot to play out here, I think.
0: That's right. In the geopolitical sense. Yeah, and that great contest between China and America, we're right in the middle of. China is still our largest trading partner by a long shot. We have relied on America for our protection. And really, since the beginning of 1942, the Battle of Midway and the Battle of Coral Sea, where effectively the Americans stood up and stopped Japan's progress south, where the Australians, once... Britain had lost Singapore in a horrible way and its two big battleships were taken down. Australia essentially changed horses. It said, yeah. okay, we, we can't rely on the Brits anymore we're gonna go with the Americans. They're the ones we're gonna rely on. New Zealand never quite made that overt switch from America to Britain. We left our troops in North Africa and they went to fight well, Italy. Well, we were still keen
1: to sell quite a lot of uh, lamb and lamb and butter and wool, I recall. That's right. Yeah.
0: But essentially that, that moment in early 1942 was the, and the fall of Singapore and the, the withdrawal of Australian troops back to, to protect the Australian homeland was a moment when essentially the British Empire ended in this part of the world now I'm not sure it's the same thing here but there's a very similar tone of discussion around can we rely on America anymore are they yeah. are they really going to guarantee our freedom when you have a president obviously not Biden but Trump come across just a year or two ago, to Europe and say to them, "Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to protect you." Yeah. You know, you didn't.
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, we we're used to we used to the allies being particularly the NATO allies, and particularly was a wonderful story today about apparently Trump absolutely can't stand or couldn't stand Angela Merkel, and in fact hung up hung up on her in their last last conversation, and just you know the moment she walked into rooms, he would kind of bridle. So I, I think it is. A, a travesty, in a sense, that the that that NATO, the allies who've lost so much, have been treated this way by by Biden and by the United States, and it very much contrasts with that whole "America is back" agenda that he that he came with. So that, that's again why I went back to that ten-year-old comments from Biden, recorded by Holbrook, because. Biden's whole sort of psyche, you know, and and including having had a a son in the military, is all about not committing more blood and treasure to somebody else's conflict. And I I, I think the, the strategic interests that the United States has are now going to be redrawn. Yeah. You know, Taiwan is clearly still a strategic interest of the United States. Rather ridiculously, Britain has sent one of its, it's <laughs> only got one left at the moment, an aircraft carrier there. I'm pretty sure it's an aircraft carrier with no aircraft as well. At oh. the moment. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're, it sent them to Taiwan. So it, it is a, it is a redrawing, I think, Bernard. Um, it's not, you know, it's not overstating it to say that that strategic importance or that strategic umbrella that we thought we might have been under is, is going to be redrawn. Um, That's right and the implications of this.
0: And it matters so much to us because we and Australia are dependent for our trade on China, but dependent for our security on America. America yeah. is entering into this much more aggressive strategic competition with China. And so far we've managed to tiptoe between the two of them and not have to make a choice. But, you know, China is starting to bulk up its own military, starting to flex its muscles in the South China Sea and a Taiwan. You remember, they, they have said outright... We're going to invade this place one day.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, there was a very good commentator on the BBC last night. I was, I, I I know I sound like a news freak, and of course I am. Talking about there being a twenty-five percent chance of an invasion of 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 Taiwan in the next ten years by Xi. Yeah. And that's a pretty, you know, it used to be kind of 2% that people were calculating. It's a much more significant possibility. Yeah, yeah. But I, I argue, I would argue, Bernard, and I, I know we slightly disagree about this, which is always excellent for this conversation, <laughs> that engagement is the only way to go with China and that the United States is going to have to have deep engagement isolation is not going to work in fact i think isolation is working against u.s interests at the moment particularly in the area of technology exports and those kinds of things you know china is there for for the long term and it isn't going to go away and regrettably to some extent nor is the chinese communist party
0: Yes, and that strategic competition we can't ignore in all sorts of ways. As um, one of our guests on the um, show today, Peter has talked about you know the Canadians. There's a bunch of Canadians who just got jailed for being Canadian. <laughs>
1: That's right. In That's right. That, well, yeah. Two. Exactly. They were they're being used as pawns uh, relative to the to, to the trial of the daughter of the f- founder of Huawei, which which is a case that really was also a bit of a travesty, really, and was unfortunately unfortunately has, has has almost been forced to play out in Canada when in fact it was it was a kind of legal ruse that Trump used to put pressure on China and and Huawei in particular. Just just one thing on on that I, I do want to mention on on Afghanistan because I think it is going to get it's going to come back as a as a serious problem, is the warlords. And there's a rather remarkable guy, Ahmad Massoud, who is the son the yeah. famous um, Mujahideen mm-hmm. commander, Ahmad Shah Masood. And he, he's got a piece in the in the Washington Post this week, right? So is how he gets a column out to the Washington Post <laughs> while he's under attack from the Taliban in the wow. in northern Pakistan. It's amazing what but you can do in, with the he, phone these days. Huh? It's amazing what you can do yeah, with a phone. Yeah, well, he's, it? you know, he's he controls the Panchia Valley, which is an absolutely critical pathway into, route into into Afghanistan from the north. Oh. And he's essentially saying, it's time for you to start supporting us again. Oh. So I think this will happen, although he is one of the few, because the other northern warlord, Dostum, fled, I think, to Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, there will be a choice to be made now of either re, re-inflating, resupporting, re-communicating with the warlords that will inevitably pop up in Afghanistan. But I just I feel as though we've kind of been through this. I mean, we the, the U.S. support for the Mujahideen. If you've seen Charlie Wilson's oh, yeah, War, which is yeah, an yeah. excellent film starring Tom Hanks, it's very very good on the 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 people we chose to create because. Because they were the enemies of the of Russia in and and the, and the Russian supported communist administration in Afghanistan. You know, we created the Taliban by the support of the Mujahideen, and we need to remember that. And we also, of course, created uh, one of the most famous Mujahideen leaders, Osama bin Laden.
0: Wow. Yes. So these events in the world flaps its wings and stuff happens. You know, we're dealing yeah. now with especially if that butterflies
1: is actually a drone coming in from Nevada. Yes, yeah. that's right.
0: Or if they are a bat that you know spreads its disease to someone. Uh, oh, that... you! Oh, gosh!
1: This is a very, very, very twisted segue into yeah, COVID, is it, Bernard? It is, yes. Because on uh, I thought Tuesday... the blame Australia thing this week was quite entertaining. Oh, Did you blame Australia. Australia? And then we found out it, re- it really was from Australia, as if we didn't know.
0: Yeah, moment from the news conference uh, on Tuesday, where the the sign language interpreter behind the prime minister was was in effect translating the Prime Minister's meaning hmm. when she was asked, so, you know, what should we do about this or where did this come from? And the Prime Minister said, well, you know, it's Australia. Yeah. And, and, the, and the the interpreter behind went,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put the link in the, in the thing. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. What, well, it's also, it is, I mean, it, there's an awful lot of blame being hurt, not just for our problem, but for the, for the whole Sydney problem on Gladys Gerard you know the, the the and she of course is using the kind of Boris Johnsonian language of we're all going to have to live with it. Now you said something to me just before we we came on that you you and not just Thomas Cochlin on the Herald <laughs> are starting to question the elimination strategy.
0: Well, I, I think this is something that we've accidentally on purpose inherited after the success of the initial lockdowns, <clears throat> which were designed to suppress. Remember, the idea was to try and give ourselves time. For our health system to be able to cope with a long spread of of cases, and then suddenly we had nothing, and we were the one place in the world with a really big moat, and we'd built an MIQ system which seemed to actually work, mm-hmm. and suddenly we thought, "Gee, we can do elimina- elimination." Well, with the uh, Skig report that came out um, last week, seems like an eon ago now. Essentially, we said, "Okay." we're going to double down on elimination. We're going to stay eliminated. And the reason we have to stay eliminated is that our hospital system basically couldn't cope with outbreaks of Delta even after we're vaccinated, particularly because at the moment our 0 to 12-year-olds can't be vaccinated and won't be able to be vaccinated until probably the middle of next year, given that the trial results from the trials of the young kids' vaccinations is not going to be back until October. And so, what that means is by default, we have adopted a fortress New Zealand policy. Which means that even after as many people as possible can be vaccinated, we're going to stay closed because we've adopted this elimination strategy. Now, at some point, we're going to have to go cold turkey on elimination. Now, we we obviously all hope isn't that what we're doing at the moment? Well, no, no, we're desperately holding on to it. We really want to. No, no, I know.
1: I mean, we we are. I mean, lockdown is cold turkey. I think you you mean we're going to have to abandon it. That's right. All we
0: have is cold turkey, and yeah. So. What it, what I think this means is that without really much debate, we've adopted elimination when the rest of the world has been forced to give it up. Now we're in the mm. process of undergoing a severe test of mm. elimination. <laughs> but what it means is that the entire nation is sort of emotionally invested in elimination. And Absolutely, I've been
1: I've been very interested. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of the way Radio New Zealand does huge. Sections of Vox pops sometimes to theoretically find out what people's mood is, but it has been astounding to me this, the 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 amount of support for it, and it's the right thing to do. And we, you know, not not so much just team of five million stuff, but really an enormous amount of support for for, for it being the right thing. But I, I did something today because I I occasionally get attacked for by various people, including in England, about both being here and also putting out sensible data on things and. I, I plucked out from the Guardian's list today, there were 36,572 cases in the UK up to the 24 hours last night. That's up 3,500 on the week. And remember a couple of weeks ago, we said that the, the, the data would start to turn around and get worse in the UK, and that's now happening. And there are 6,379 people in hospital wow. hospital, and 113 deaths. And this is daily yeah. And somebody from New Zealand, a guy called Fraser Rolfe, who may be on this call, I don't know, noted that if this was New Zealand, we would have 2,700 new cases, 500 in hospital, and eight deaths a yeah. day.
0: And we literally could not
1: handle that. We out. couldn't. Not out. only could we not handle it, you know, we've barely been able to handle 26 old people dying. That's right. And, you know, and and rightly too, you know, it, we, we're in a remarkable position. Somebody else attacked me today. It was, it was that you know? Some, I'm not, oh, I do feel a bit under attack, actually, Bernard. I need you might call me later for a bit of a bit of a pep talk. But um, saying that lockdowns don't work, and of course, I use New Zealand as an example because this person was using Sweden and the UK as a comparison. And of course, the UK's lockdowns didn't work terribly well because they were too late. Yeah. So you know, there is a there is a method behind. The the Jacinda and Ashley approach. I just don't see that we've got too many options at the moment, Bernard. Although to, today evidence that it's in Wellington or been in Wellington, and that what well, is in Wellington, and that there may be other South South Island locations involved, sort of takes away a little bit of that optimism yesterday about the gene the genomics that allowed them to kind of can get to get to patient zero on one of them, on one of the you know there are two different groups in Auckland, and it would appear there may be some other groups elsewhere in New Zealand. So It's going to
0: be a real uh, you know. battle because Delta is a bloody nightmare. Not only is it so much more effect- infectious, but it seems to be attacking young people. And of course, young people are the ones who spend all their time meeting up with other people regularly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, those I'm locations... not sure what the
1: alternatives are at the moment. Are you, Bernard?
0: Oh, no. no we, have to, we have to lock down. We have to keep elimination for as long as we can into next year. But at some point we're going to reach some sort of threshold where we say everyone's had a chance, our ICUs have been beefed up. For example... We only have one paediatric ICU department in the entire country, Mm. which is Starship. Mm. It's already full up most days anyway. So we we really couldn't handle any sort of outbreak which hit the young, particularly in South Auckland at the moment. But you've got to do the most you can to ensure that when the outbreak eventually does come, that we can cope with it. Yeah, And the political
1: support will will ebb very, very, very quickly as the deaths go up or the cases go up. And again, Joe Moyer from Newsroom did a very good piece this week interview with chris hipkins but again she didn't entirely nail him on the question about the delays in the in the in, in the vaccine program and his original comment of which she in fact didn't even hold him to account on his original comment about being being ahead of the queue being the, of the at the, at the uh, front of the queue. front of the queue and i just i still think there are answers there that we need from reporters uh, talking to ministers about exactly what the decisions were about supply. Because they were saying, again, I think Aisha Varel was talking about this has all, all been a supply issue, but now supply is sorted out, which is great. But was it really a supply issue and could we have done anything about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there is this suggestion that we could have overpaid at the start to make sure that we got a, a, an earlier set of doses from Pfizer. There mm. was questions at the conference, press conference today about whether or not we've – whether our one vaccine strategy was the right one if we'd been able to <coughs> throw AstraZeneca and others yeah. into the pot maybe our vaccination rates would be higher
1: I'm, I'm a little bit I I actually when it was taken I thought that was a that was a brilliant decision to go for the one because of course we've we've discussed as well the idea from Brazil of vaccine vaccines and, and people making choices between them and wanting different ones and I I think that the, the, the choice element would only increase the vex, both yeah. vaccine hesitancy. But of course, there are these other interesting things which maybe we can tackle next week, Bernard. I mean, the whole... Misinf- the, the susceptibility of Maori and Pacifica populations to yeah. misinformation is an extremely interesting social topic to me, and one that the media needs to needs to deal with. I do some work at Stuff, and Stuff has today reopened its connections to Facebook mm. purely for COVID information because it realizes, or it's realized that you know there is a significant chunk of population that needs good, high quality information on this. Although, as we both know, I find in one person in my family is. suggested this morning that I listened to Peter Williams interviewing Des Gorman. And I just thought, why would you choose to listen to those two when there is actually good quality, you know, proper analysis out there? Not necessarily, you know, Susie Wiles is doing astounding work. But what, why would you listen to Des Gorman and Peter Williams right now? I just don't know. Yeah,
0: well, what? Another interesting thing on that area of misinformation. I mean, you could listen
1: to us. Oh, absolutely. Of course, instead, no, no, we yeah. we could. Proper or, expert, no. Exactly. <laughs> Amateur epidemiologist. That's right. Um,
0: well, one of the interesting things on that misinformation area that I I found fascinating was the NZ on Air survey done last year of Maori and Pacifica youth about what. Media they consume, mm. particularly televisual media. And of course, much more than half of the survey respondents said they got most of their information in news and news in a televisual sense, at least, from both Facebook and YouTube. Mm. And Prime Minister has been an aggressive user of Facebook Live as well. She absolutely to- has,
1: and she's been brilliant. I guess she'll probably do it. I mean, they, they, they obviously broadcast the official briefings them there, but I imagine we'll hear from her tonight and her absolutely charming kind of elegant mm, she yeah. is so good at her facebook appearances and you know you watch them with i watch them with a sense of awe you know there's this new zealand and there'll be seven hundred thousand people there and the flow of positive love to her from these oh, from people is absolutely extraordinary to witness it's yeah. a it's a remarkable skill that she has
0: And you can see why she doesn't want to um, give up the platform. But this misinformation area is going to continue to be one that's pounded away at as a problem. Because as we get closer to that 60-70% mark, and there was already some campaigns launched today from people around the Māori health community to say... There needs to be much more attention and focus on improving Absolutely. vaccination rates, particularly amongst young <clears throat> Maori and Pacifica. And I think we'll, there was a question in today's news conference about it, which I I don't think either Ashley Bloomfield or the Prime Minister really addressed directly. And I think there's going to be more more news on that. It certainly yeah. had a yeah. Well, I think it was that
1: that that would appear to be what was underlying that that awful vaccination rate amongst the. Tauranga Stevedores you know that, yeah. that, that there was there was some comment there particularly I think from the trade union that there was you know a real difficulty there with misinformation and where these guys were, were getting accurate information which kind of gives the lie I, I one of somebody we both know Barry Barry Saunders was complaining on Facebook today that the government was spending too much money on, on uh, advertising about COVID and could, could have just relied on the media and I'm not absolutely sure that's the case I think they've got to try you know because the 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 great thing and i can say this as somebody who normally lives in england the although i to have to stop saying that the longer i'm here the coherence of the message mm. has been absolutely you know people might be i mean who's that ghastly zb presenter who talked about sticking needles in her eyes when she when she was watching Orcsby. uh just yeah i mean the coherence yeah. even if you are a little if we are a little bit all exhausted with being kind and the and the five million the coherence and the grasp of detail. That the prime minister communicates is remarkable. I sometimes worry that she almost conveys too much detail that she should leave to leave to Ashley Bloomfield. But her her command of the number of cases, the locations, the the way the cases are being analysed is remarkable, and I think that engenders a great deal of trust
0: yeah no she's um certainly been uh, at the top of her game this this week, and I think the entire nation's been focused on those one o'clock or today's three o'clock news conferences and of course the news yeah, so- out news out today is that we're going to be in lockdown nationwide until at least Tuesday afternoon, and given the news today about three cases in Wellington, the, the, it's clear that there, some people have left Auckland who were in those yep. locations of interest. And I mean, who
1: would go to Wellington from Auckland? It's a mad idea, really. <laughs> That's but, exactly. um, but, but so, so really, in the short term, still elimination, still pushing on. It's yeah, the only way to go. And isn't I think,
0: it? I think next year, middle of next year, we're going to have some really interesting debates about when we drop elimination mm. and start to open up again, because I don't think yeah, anyone... So what do you think
1: about the political... I, I don't really like the political horse race aspect of this, but I did hear, you know, the, nat- the national COVID spokesman today t- making it all about uh, vaccination. You know, it's yeah. essentially... You know, they're trying to find some ground on which they can criticise the government. I I noticed uh, David Seymour was criticising the government for not telling telling the media enough about the cases in Wellington today. But Bernard, you you also were talking about the the implications for the economy and Mm -hmm. the Adrian Adrian Or decision not to um, to raise the cash rate. So up till about three o'clock on
0: Tuesday afternoon, everyone expected either a 25 basis point or a 50 basis point hike in the official cash rate at... Uh, 2 o'clock on Wednesday, but of course then we heard about the case A, then we had the lockdown (laughs) announced about Mm. 6.20pm on Tuesday night. And very quickly people in the markets realized, okay, they can't really hike on the day we go into lockdown. Mm. So that was put off. You could see they had to madly rewrite the entire statement. This is their quarterly monetary policy statement. It's a 30-page, you know, detailed forecasts plus explanations of what they're about to do. And remember, this is a big deal for New Zealand. This would be our mm-hmm. first rate hikes in seven years. And
1: wouldn't we we be the first Western Reserve Bank to to do this as well? Exactly.
0: Um, And there was a lot of attention on New Zealand jumping out ahead of the rest of the world. Remember, the Mm. rest of the world right now is not thinking about rate hikes. The delta surges have gone through and really hit consumer confidence in America, have slowed growth. Interest rates in the wholesale markets have dropped. Expectations about inflation have dropped. Whereas in New Zealand, we've had this really un- unusual sort of isolated hothouse of discussion about inflation yeah. and housing yeah. markets. I wonder, Bernard,
1: if, if, if we don't, two, two things on this. One is if we don't get, don't get Delta under control quite quickly, I wonder whether we might, in fact, have to revisit all of those economic gloom forecasts that were made last year. Remember when, and it was a perfectly natural uh view around may may june last year that it was that the economy might even go into recession it, it it didn't and the recovery has been absolutely extraordinary but i wonder whether we might have to dust off some of those forecasts if if delta isn't adequately contained yeah, or eliminated. it just
0: depends on how long it goes on for and how much damage it it does to the economy but remember we went through this last year and we threw everything back at it. so the government to put in place the wage subsidies, mm. the resurgent payments, the leave, Leave support, and they were activated on day one this time. So, good thing for the government is that they have a a, a range of tools sitting there ready to go, which they've picked up and thrown at the issue straight away. <clears throat> so that's going to help. Also, well, let there... me
1: let me ask you the Peter Williams question here in a way because I I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people in Europe. Yeah. I, I look at what my friends in London are doing; they're all going out to restaurants, they're all vaccinated, the place is buzzing. I look at places in Spain that I go. The streets are filled with people. Some of them with some of them with masks. They're all having holidays. I really want a holiday in the sun in Spain, and I can't have one at the moment. I'm, you know, under lockdown on Hern Bay. I mean, I which is not exactly the Riviera, but it's not bad, you know. And I know I'm a lucky boy, but it does feel kind of weird and disjointed sometimes mm. to be under lockdown. And, and of course, there was some remarkable, ill-informed and and criticism of New Zealand going on this week, particularly oh, from the, the Telegraph. Glenn, Glenn what is that Glenn about? World. Glenn Greenwald, you know, essentially saying that the president of New Zealand had turned turned it into a fascist state over one case. And the, the responses to that, you know, to, you talk about New Zealand as being, being responsive to it. It was very, very funny. But I, I do just every now and then I have a, I have a slight kind of, hang on a minute, you know, the, the places that I think are dystopian hellholes aren't, in fact. Mm. But yeah. 35,000 cases yesterday yeah. in the UK. Yeah, you know, no, and, um, how many deaths if, did I say? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so. it is
0: possible we could. Um, have a really bad outbreak here that puts us back into something like recession. But remember, mm. uh, the government has plenty of uh, money in its its kitty to really throw at it. In fact, uh, Grant Robertson said this week that the government wouldn't even need to increase its borrowing program. It had plenty of money in the kitty, and that's actually true. They have $40 billion, just quietly, in a Reserve Bank bank account that they could use. The Reserve mm. Bank could start money printing again. It stopped six weeks ago. And certainly that will be an interesting question. Does the Reserve Bank go back to money printing if it does need to ease? Should the government start to do fiscal policy a lot more directly with consumers and workers rather than just businesses as they have at the moment? Yeah. And and also whether the Reserve Bank, because the thing about the last year is that the Reserve Bank, because it had already cut interest rates to virtually zero, had to print money to pump up the housing market to use as a wealth tool to support the economy. Essentially, make mm. wealthy people feel and actually be wealthier. So they go out and spend and invest their money and support the economy, which, you know, in terms of tools was probably slightly fairer than the way the Americans did it. The Americans did it for the stock market, okay, mostly. So is, yeah, absolutely. And, and those, you know, there's a smaller proportion of the population who own the stock market, whereas in New Zealand, at least 60% of the people own houses here and got the benefits. But of course, those who weren't homeowners feeling pretty grumpy mm. a year on. Are, you going on.
1: are you going on about housing again? Bernard? It's, I, not like yeah, you. it's not it's, like you. There's only two things that are interesting, yeah, which is housing yeah. and interest rates. But, yeah. yeah. And Bernard, you wanted to talk about about migration as well. Oh, I, yes. I think, you know, you've you you you've been talking about the scale of the population that we want or that's ideal. And, of course, I think often of a, of a friend of ours, Delipa Fonseca, who has oh, yeah. been doing, I think, an excellent job mm. in explaining both the human and economic cost of these Said about quarter of a million people who are still in the country with on short-term visas or on you know what do you call it, skilled skilled visas. migrant visas, but they're not really migrants. They're just they're kind of guest workers because we don't give them a pathway for citizenship. I, I should say, Bernard, as well. We should. I, I can't see the questions, but if, if there are any things that people want to discuss who are on the on the um, attendees list, I, I'm very happy to do that too. Yeah, now we've had a few questions, some
0: of which I've raised and some of which we've uh, addressed. There is a question from Julian about what the Reserve Bank is going to do with its $54 billion worth of government bonds on its books. Great question. The um, Reserve Bank Governor, Adrian Orr, announced at the monetary policy statement that there would be a review about what to do with the balance sheet, but the Reserve Bank has already signalled a couple of months ago that it's going to basically sit on those bonds and let them roll off as they Mm. mature, and that essentially says they're not going to sell them back into the market to push up interest rates. Uh, Like central banks all around the world, they basically buy the bonds and then hold them and then essentially let them mature and then cancel the money as it goes. So they're not going to use it Use it as a reverse monetary policy tool. Mm. In fact, the, the Reserve Bank um, is leaving open the option of negative interest rates. And in fact, it was very clear this week that if it does need to use monetary policy again to support the economy, that negative interest rates would be the way, and I think there's some really interesting options here for the government and the Reserve Bank around negative interest rates. Which means they have a thing called a funding for lending program, which means the mm. Reserve Bank can lend to the banks at the at the official cash rate, so 0.25 percent. And if it goes negative, they can lend to the banks at negative interest rates. And so far, the banks have been very wary about borrowing that money because it's politically explosive. But they have been very, also very clever in borrowing the money at 0.25% and dedicating that money to be lent into new house bills Mm, mm. at 1.69%, yeah, Mm. which is great. And so if we do have a stimulation from the Reserve Bank that uses negative interest rates in the the future, let's hope all of the benefit of that low interest rates goes into building new housing supply, which will try and address some of the problems we've got there. I've got a question about... But are, oh, sorry, Ben. Yeah, no, so great questions about when the government, uh, when the Reserve Bank gets rid of those bonds, whether they roll off or not. And that will be interesting to see over the next week. The other thing that I think was interesting from the Reserve Bank is that they did warn people about what they said was an unsustainable housing market. Mm. However, when you had a look at their forecasts, they're actually forecasting house prices to rise another yeah, 10%. to become even more sustainable.
1: Yeah, unsustainable. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and that's then what be followed by a five percent fall in house prices. So net net, they're still expecting house prices to rise from the crazily unsustainable levels here to 5% higher than the crazily unsustainable house price levels. And in part because we still have the basic problem the government has left in place a massive tax advantage for owner-occupiers of property, and it's still battling to get that supply into the market, even though we have the highest rate of house-building uh, since the early 1970s, um, we still have an enormous hole to fill of a deficit of houses, not to mention the houses that needed to be built for all the extra people arrived, but to replace the houses that are a bloody nightmare. They are mm. cold and dark and, and damp and need to be bold. And uh, that will be an ongoing piece of work for the next five
1: or ten years. And hopefully To Reserve go back Bank to migration for a minute, Bernard. Yeah, yeah, sure. Bernard. What, are we, you know, what are the implications on all of this for migration?
0: Ah Yes. Well, so at the moment, obviously, everything's shut down. The government's doing a review of migration settings. And the theory is that once we open up, the government will tighten the rules for these temporary workers. As you say, about a quarter of a million still here. The question is whether or not they are granted some sort of residency amnesty. I hope they are. But then there's the question of, so what do we do now? How many should we let in? Should Mm. we go for a particular population growth rate? Well, at the moment, the government is not trying to um, come up with a population policy. I think that's a mistake. For the last 20 years, uh, we have systematically underestimated the size of our population. Every year, mm. the numbers have been a lot more than what Stats NZ forecast. And that, of course, is a problem. If you're trying to build infrastructure to deal with a certain level of population, you need to get ahead of the curve, not get, be continually surprised.
1: And, and Bernard, how much politically... I mean, I, again, the, the, I, I thought the government was a bit lame, really, on that recent statement about, about supposedly going for highly skilled migrants and so on. I mean, the anybody who goes to a restaurant goes to the dry cleaner or goes to goes in a in an uber knows that you know those kind of jobs are being occupied in many 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 cases by people on these visas even if it's because they lost their jobs as software engineers they're still there driving an uber but what what are the political implications here i mean is that what's holding them back from from doing that granting and and how much of a role is it or how much of a, an issue is it about indigenous Populations, particularly the, you know, the Maori population and the, and Maori views of of immigration in this, which in the sense, if you talk to somebody like John Tamahiri, have been you know pretty concerned about the scale of of of, of immigration over the past fifteen years or so. Yeah, no,
0: that's, that's and the changing nature what great-
1: that's done to change the nature of the country ethnically. That's,
0: that's a great point. And I did a podcast for the spin-off on this and spoke to New Zealand's leading Māori demographer, Tau Kukutai, from Waikato University, mm-hmm. who isn't necessarily a fan of having a specific population policy or population growth target or a single number. She's much more interested in making sure that planners at both the council and government level take into account the very different nature of New Zealand's Māori population, much younger than the rest of the population, yeah. therefore more in need of... Education, training, skills acquisition, all sorts of different needs, which aren't being met at the moment. Not to mention housing, and ultimately, I don't think you can really deal with our core issues around <laughs> housing inequality and climate change unless you you, know, you have control of how fast your population is going to grow. I personally think that New Zealand's in a good position to be a big. New Zealand, I think we actually have lots of space and we've actually got quite a good system and people want to come here. Also, it's, a, it's can an opportunity. we just opp- make it
1: really, really, really rich Americans? <laughs> yeah, that's, we right, tried that's, already? that's
0: right, we have. <clears throat> and they can come and go whenever they want, apparently. But I think there's an opportunity I'm here. I'm being for, facetious to no, see if no, anybody's no, no. actually watching us. <laughs> they will need lots of consulting. Definitely. So, uh, one of the things I think is there's an opportunity here for a deal. And the deal is for those in the business community, those in the center right of politics who like growth, who like high migration, who like having lots of cheap, easy, compliant, always turning up on time workers. They like that. And they're always asking the government, yes, we want more migrants coming in, to get them to agree to certainly much more intense infrastructure spending and building so that we can deal with Mm -hmm. all these people coming in. And the deal is, big New Zealand, open borders, lots of migrants, but you have to agree to share some of the bounty that's come from all that population growth. So some sort of wealth or land tax or increasing tax rates so you can pay for the infrastructure needed to cope with
1: all these people. That's really and that's- You always come back to your socialist ideas of more tax and government you now tax and spend. Burned.
0: Well, actually, it works. It works. It worked for the West. Just, so we just come... So bring it all back to Afghanistan and America is the protector of... Freedom and the Western ideas. This all came from the legacy of FDR mm-hmm. and the Marshall Plan, which was a fantastic piece of American strategic uh,
1: understanding, understanding, yep. but understanding but, I mean, of the implications of it. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So, what did they do when America, when Europe was in ruins, and for their own reasons, they basically rebuilt continental Europe. By the way, they they left. Britain off the, plan, off the plan and it was in poverty for 30 years and from 1945 onwards. But anyway, they rebuilt Germany and France and rebuilt it up as a bastion against the Soviet Union. The Marshall Plan was a huge amount of money and suddenly, because it was this strong country that defended, essentially helped Russia and the rest of the world beat Germany and Japan and paid in a big way with all of those debts mm. and all of the... It was the Belt and Road plan of its time. Yeah, and it worked, and people learnt to trust America from 1945 onwards. That trust was eroded by the fall of Saigon, and this week's fall of Kabul further erodes that trust. Mm. And one of the reasons the trust is gone is because, frankly, the richest capitalists in America took the piss, after nineteen eighty nine, when the when the when the Cold War and the the Wall fell, and essentially went to town and had the biggest party,
1: mm. undermi- with the peace dividend,
0: yeah, undermined and the peace dividend, undermined the the consensus, the the concessions that FDR and Truman and uh, Eisenhower made to the workers, if you like, that great settlement of the particularly the late forties, the fifties, and the sixties. Again, this is only for the white Americans. It didn't really spread to the black Americans. But, you know, you have the GI Bill where all those all those troops came home and learnt a trade and a skill. That's if they hadn't learned to fly a fighter plane or or fire a um, complicated uh, piece of artillery during the war and came back and used those skills in the factories in America. America invested in Europe, created this amazing place that bought all of America's exports. Um America was outward looking and invested with its partners, and became a trusted partner. It started to piss that away during the Vietnam War, and since the fall of the Cold the Cold War, the fall of uh, the Berlin Wall, America has pissed away that peace dividend, and now the price is a lack of trust amongst
1: its mm-hmm. partners, amongst us all. And well, we could do this again, but I mean, we we've talked too about the. The, how the decision to invade Iraq, uh, Iraq in 2003, yeah. both Tony Blair and George Bush, and the undermining of truth there, really created this kind of modern modern polarization and modern disbelief in politicians. Now, some politician that people apparently did used to admire and believe died today. Michael Cullen. Oh, yeah. You wanted to close our session with a little bit of a a valedictory thing about him, and it was very noticeable that um, Jacinda Ardern. I oh, uh, had a little bit of a, a little bit of an emotional hiccup when she when she honoured him with a with a remark just before she handed over to Ashley Bloomfield today.
0: Yeah, Sir so Michael Cullen was essentially a mentor for Jacinda Ardern and particularly Grant Robertson. There was an awful lot of contact after they won that surprise victory in 2017. Sir Michael Cullen became the head of the tax working group and occupied a really unusual position in New Zealand politics of being one of our great politicians and statesmen trusted by both sides of politics. Mm -hmm. So when the national government was in after 2009, Mm -hmm. he became the chair of New Zealand Post and Kiwi Bank from memory. And, And you can see in the valedictories today from both sides of politics, there's an awful lot of respect. I had several conversations with Michael Cullen when he was finance minister, and he was clearly... The sharpest tack in cabinet, completely across his brief, one of the hardest working, most dedicated. Politicians I'd ever met, and he f- he'd formed a relationship with Helen Clark, which was the anchor for the entire government. Mm-hmm. Uh, of... do, you, do you think that that's
1: what Jacinda Ardern has modelled in her relationship with um, Grant Robertson now?
0: Absolutely. If you look at the partnership of Helen Clark and Sir Michael Cullen, it is the the pathway. It is the model for Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson. Mm-hmm. A core of strength for a, a duo. Who knew their places? You know, Helen Clark was the public face, the the one able to connect eventually with the New mm-hmm. Zealand public. Just Cinder Ardern did that much quicker. But the behind the scenes makes stuff happen you're my trusted person to go in there and organise things in cabinet to run the strategy to get things done, that is Grant Robertson. And I think that, that duo of Adern and Robertson fashioned themselves on Clark mm-hmm. and Cullen. And I think Cullen, because of his personality, he's much more engaging, much more willing to, you know, shoot the breeze. Helen Clark was and is a a slightly tougher tougher Mm -hmm. person to really get close to. And it's interesting, even Michael Cullen, who, for those who study New Zealand politics way back in the early 90s, he was deputized by the rest of the Labour caucus to go to Helen Clark when she was opposition leader and down in the polls (laughs) and tell her to go. And Helen Clark stood her ground and basically said, no, Michael, I'm not going. I'm going to be the leader of the Labour Party. And he said, oh, okay." And then eventually they came together and were a great partnership. Mm. And so he, he, he has a special role in New Zealand politics and in our economy as well as the finance minister, the Labour finance minister that got the government's books back into surplus very fast and... Pay back a lot of debt, but also helped build and was the key player in the New Zealand Superfund, which now has...
1: Yeah, which was know, a sort of rebuilding of the thing that Bill Rowling... Yeah, killed had off. ...had proposed. Well, he it's, it's it's proposed kind and got... Of, run, um, yeah. you want
0: it? It, it, And he did it in a very <coughs> clever way, which meant that it was there as a non-compulsory fund. It was funded by the government directly and created this big piece of ballast, really, which... It's mm, um, kind of a sovereign wealth fund, really. Yeah, yeah. And the creation of KiwiSaver was the sort of second... Arm of that strategy, Mm. which Mm. was also very clever. It wasn't a compulsory super scheme. It was a a nudge economics. Oh, look, I'm accidentally in Kiwisaver and I'm stuck there. Stuck. Very, very clever and very successful. I think.
1: Am I right in recalling that Cullen had a had a had a very uncomfortable relationship with Roger Douglas?
0: Yes. There's a very good, I'll put a link to it in in the full thing that goes out tomorrow, but he has an interview with Catherine Ryan from a couple of months ago where he talks about his relationship with Roger Douglas, which was initially warm. And then when Douglas went too far in 1986 and 87 with the flat tax package, package, they fell out awfully. Mm -hmm. And essentially it was a full-on war where on one side Cullen led the troops against Douglas's troops and Longy got stuck in the middle. He's always been a powerful force in the Labour caucus. He was the chief whip whip right at the beginning of the 1984 um, period. And of course, went on to become one of the key leaders after the fall in nineteen ninety. And incredibly sharp, witty. Have you
1: read his book, Bernard? He had, I mean, he managed to get a book out fa- yeah. fairly, fairly recently. Is it? Yeah, any yeah. no, it's on it's on
0: my pile. <laughs> <Things> <laughs> to read. But I would recommend this uh, thirty nine minute interview with Catherine Ryan from a couple of months ago, which really tells the story very well. Um, I, I mean, he he is a giant of New Zealand's political economy in terms of creating New Zealand Superfund, of getting the the government's books back into surplus and creating KiwiSaver. He was a key figure in the stability of that Clark government. But on the other hand, he is, he is one of those died in the world third way politicians. Mm-hmm. He was the guy in the early 2000s who said New Zealanders would never accept a capital gains tax. And in my view, he was put in as the head of the tax working group because he too was was always going to say
1: no to a capital, capital
0: mm-hmm. gains Interesting. tax in the end.
1: He so also- it always comes back to housing. Are there any, should we deal with any further questions before we before we hang out? I don't think we've got a skateboarding dog story tonight other no. than a valedict- very nice valedictory comment about about michael cullen although i really worry about journalists using the expression passed away or battled cancer i i find those 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 are phrases for the family or for others to say not for journalists but that's um, a bit of a pedant about that
0: yeah i I actually admire how michael cullen (laughs) used his time after leaving politics to be very involved and gracious and generous with others in politics and in the media. Mm-hmm. And he was often commenting and in, in there in a way that wasn't... I mean, some ex-politicians are a pain in the ass. You just want them to go away into retirement. But Michael Cullen always had something good and interesting to add, and he will be a presence we won't... that we'll miss on the scene. There's a couple of questions here about... Yeah, can we hold those? We'll hold those for next time. I really enjoyed that session, Peter. That was fantastic. Well, that's we're, good, Bernard.
1: Just, just, just one thing I would will just mention, because... It just did occur to me. I should have dealt, dealt with it earlier. There's been an awful situation in Kabul today, where Australian yeah. Afghani's trying to get to the airport have been turned back by quite brutal force from the, from various Taliban people, and it meant that an Australia evacuation flight left with only 26 people on it. Now, I don't think that that bodes very well for the Hercules getting to Kabul and being able to do what what do the right thing. It's a, I, I worry that's going to be a very very uncomfortable situation, but I, I hope it's not.
0: Yeah, no, that Hercules left on Wednesday, and we hope that it all comes back safely. But I think you're right, it's pictures as we go on are getting worse and worse. And we'll we'll go we'll come back to it uh, next well, week. It's very
1: kind of so many people to have to have come and heard us talk bollocks and go around go around the houses. But any, any feedback would be very welcome. Thank you.
0: And we will put a recorded version of this uh, up in a piece on the Kaka tomorrow, which goes out to all subscribers. And mm. hopefully we'll be able to do this again next week. We normally do it at three o'clock, but this week that clashed with the press conference mm. that the prime minister had. So we put it to four, and we hope you all come back. Please do put your questions in on the chat next time or on the website as well. We'll try and answer those questions. See you, Vernon. Thank you very much.
1: Catch you. Bye-bye. Bye.